We believe emotional well-being is intricately tied to spiritual connection. We know that there is hope for those of us who have experienced trauma, even profound trauma, and that's why we created the Universe Is Your Therapist podcast. We envision a world of healing and connection and teach you simple but powerful practices to help you come home to your highest self, to your truest identity. We believe you are a divine soul who's deeply loved and that the entire universe conspires for your good. You're valued beyond comprehension, and we want to help you realize that. You are not broken, you are loved, and you can heal. Hi, my name is Dr. Amy Hoyt, and together with my sister, Lena, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we will lead you on a journey of self-discovery and self-love. Welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about overcoming automatic negative thoughts, otherwise known as ants. Okay, so we all have thoughts running through our heads at all times. I'm reading a book called The Untethered Soul right now, and it really drives home how we have a whole set of chatter that's constantly running in the background. And most of the thoughts occur on a subconscious level. They're usually worry or warning thoughts. So these are the automatic negative thoughts because they are typically negative. And they're often thoughts that begin with, what if, oh no, and they're really about reacting to past difficult experiences and trauma. So our past is informing those negative thoughts. Correct. So because they're automatic, we don't necessarily realize how they affect our mood and our sense of self or our ability to remain self-regulated. So here's the question I have. If we're not even aware they're out there, how do we become aware? And then what do we do with these thoughts? I had my own journey of this when you went into rehab and I started therapy. That's when my journey began as to becoming more aware of my thoughts that were subconscious and automatic. And it it takes a lot of effort and energy and it takes practice because as we become aware, we are laying down new neural pathways and our automatic neural pathways are linked to our unawareness in terms of what's running through our head all the time. And actually, it's protective because if we attended to every thought that was in our head, we would be mush because there's always something going on in our head. So what type of exercise would the therapist do to help you understand the automatic thoughts that were going on for you? I have a couple of exercises that I use. What I use when I was first learning this is that I learned from a book about cognitive errors and cognitive impact to myself. And I walked around with a little index card and I would notice when I got upset or when I was having a physical sensation I would get into a more calm place and then I would think back as to what was running underneath my conscious mind. And then I would write down the automatic negative thought. So by being calm and reflecting back, you could remember or become aware. Correct. Okay. So for me, it's, it usually happens when I'm parenting. I'm probably thinking about deadlines for work. And there's some sort of need with one of my kids and I am feeling rushed and anxious and I'm irritable. At the same time, I don't understand why I'm irritable. However, what I've noticed is the days I don't have big deadlines, I'm much more patient. And so that helped me figure out that it was actually my work schedule that was causing a lot of the worry and the fears. And it was always running in the background. 
That's great that you became aware of that. All of the negative thoughts fall into different categories. So talk to us about the categories of the style of thinking that people engage in. Sure. When I was first introduced to this, when I was first in therapy, I was informed by my therapist that my emotions were a byproduct of my thoughts. And I thought that was stupid. And I did not believe it. And as I continued to read and then become more knowledgeable about that idea, it helped me to realize that I had a lot of really catastrophic, horrifying thoughts that were impacting my ability to regulate my emotions. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, there are in between 10 and 15 different thinking styles or categories that our automatic negative thoughts fall into. One of those is magnification or minimizing. A lot of times in therapy, we would call that catastrophizing. What's an example of catastrophizing? An example of catastrophizing is what maybe what you were describing, where you have a child that comes in and wants or needs something from you and your brain starts going into this, oh no, I'm not going to get this done in time. I only have two more hours. What's going to happen? I'm going to flake out on my responsibility, whatever it is personally to you. We then have reactive emotions and body sensations because of that. Another one is black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking. And an example of that is when something happens, we see it as only positive or negative, or we see it as always or never. And it's really dysregulating when we can't have areas of gray. And I'm not discussing like moral or values and our codes with that. I'm talking about getting an A and saying that because it wasn't 100%, you failed. That's very all or nothing, black and white thinking. A third one is jumping to conclusions, also talked about as mind reading and fortune telling. One thing I've noticed that because we had raging in our family is that I became very hypervigilant about reading facial expressions. Unfortunately, my brain would always err on the side of panic and fear. So if somebody was in front of me and had a headache in our family and their brow was scrunched, I would think they were angry. And so I would have a response in my body and in my emotions about something that I thought I knew was happening when it wasn't actually really happening. Because anger was dangerous. Anger was very dangerous in our family. We also have emotional reasoning. You and I have talked about this a little bit. And this is also a really common phrase in the 12-step programs. And that is feelings are not facts. Emotional reasoning is when you have an emotion about something and you subconsciously believe that because you have an emotion, the fact is reflective of your emotion, not that the fact is a fact and your emotion is coloring your perception. Give us an example, something tangible. One example is when somebody says, I feel like you don't love me. That's emotional reasoning because actually what it is, is it's a thought. I think you don't love me. And then you have whatever attending emotion comes with that panic or worry or fear, or loneliness, disappointment. And the brain believes that now it's true that you don't love me. And so, so much of our distress is directly related to the way we think and the semantics we use in describing our thoughts and feelings, especially to ourselves. What's another one? Another one is should statements. 
And back in the 70s and 80s, Albert Ellis, he was a very popular psychiatrist in New York City in Manhattan. And he coined the phrase, quit shooting on yourself, which I think is really awesome. And so shoulds or ought tos or musts are always imperatives. For example, if we go back to the parenting issue, if you have in your head, I must get this accomplished by five and it's 4.30 and you have a kid who's super distressed, those two things are going to bump up against each other, collide and crash. And even when a kid is not super distressed, (laughs) all you working parents out there, I got you. It is always a quote unquote crisis for the child. Yes. Even if the channel's not working and you have the TV babysitting them. I have one parent that says, is the house on fire? The kid looks at him and says, no. Okay, I'll be with you in 25 minutes. And and I love that response because it's not loaded with a lot of contempt or disdain. It's just very matter of fact. So should statements are imperatives and they create a lot of pressure and urgency internally. We also have the concept or the style of thinking called personalization. That is really interesting because for so many of us that have had trauma, we tend to either absolve ourselves of all responsibility or we own way too much and we think that we are responsible for everything. And neither one of those ideas is healthy. And so when something goes wrong and you are associated with what's the event or what's happening, it's not uncommon, especially for people who drive, who are drivers or overachievers, that they will honestly think that they are responsible for solving it, even though they're not the CEO or the chairman of the committee or the person in charge of the activity. So you're not saying it's not healthy to think that if you were a victim of sexual assault, that it wasn't all your perpetrator's fault. You're not saying that. You're saying it causes a thinking error from the trauma that another event seems either all your responsibility or all someone else's responsibility. Yes. And most people who have violent trauma tend to be very hyper responsible. And part of that is coming out of the trauma. So if I'm a survivor of sexual assault, there is a part of my brain that genuinely is telling me subconsciously that if I had only done this differently, hadn't worn this outfit, hadn't gone down that path, hadn't gone on that date, hadn't had a drink. And so that's where the overdevelopment of responsibility comes in is from the trauma. And then it gets filtered onto everything. We also have a style of thinking called labeling. And I think this is really fascinating because really what labeling is And it's very confusing. We had a really interesting talk about this a couple days ago. Labeling is concluding meaning about something instead of describing behavior. So if I say to my teenage daughter or son, you are being very selfish right now. I'm labeling their motivation, not their behavior. And if I were to say, I've asked you three times to take out the garbage and you haven't yet, That would be describing the behavior. But for me to assume it's because they're selfish, first of all, that causes a rupture in my relationship with my child. And secondly, it gets me really emotionally activated because being selfish is dangerous to connection. What I hear you saying is labeling people with character defects when in fact it's a set of behaviors that are not helpful right now. 
Well, in CBT, overgeneralization means you take one event and you make it about you believe that it's going to happen everywhere in all situations. One example could be if I am a junior high kid, I go to my first junior high dance. No one asks me to dance, which is very archaic. I grew up in the 80s. And I start thinking then that no one will ever ask me to dance ever subconsciously, no matter how old I am, no matter what I look like. And the overgeneralization makes our world smaller. I noticed the next thinking style is called overgeneralization. And instantly I think of stereotyping. Absolutely. What are you thinking when you say that? Well, I'm thinking, especially as we've been dealing as a society with systemic racism, systemic homophobia, really a lot of clashes in general divided by political, ethnic, religious, racial lines in the U.S., I'm just ever so aware that the lines that are drawn tend to be sometimes stereotypical. And, you know, all white people are like this. All black people are like this. All native people are like this. I find that that's really problematic because to me, it also reminds me of black and white thinking. And it is dangerous, one, because I don't think it's accurate. And two, because those all or nothing statements tend to not be very positive. So it's not all black people are wonderful. It's all black people are X, Y, Z. And it's not all white men are so benevolent and interested in others. It's all white men are propping up the patriarchy. And I, you know, definitely have studied systemic racism and systemic gender issues for years. My PhD is in gender studies and religion. And I'm really passionate about allowing individuals, again, going back to agency as my dissertation, allowing individuals to have their individual worth and not be simply swept into a group where it would be easy to not see the individual and their needs and their gifts. And that actually goes to labeling as well. So if I'm labeling somebody, I'm not seeing them as a person. I'm seeing them as a type. So we have labeling, we have overgeneralization, and we have black and white or all or nothing thinking. And all of that can really engender a lot of discord, dysregulation, and hate. You know, it's no surprise that in the U.S., And really globally, we're seeing an uptick in division. And again, when I see stereotyping done, it's not typically to uphold some wonderful characteristic of a particular group. It's not benevolent. It is not. Okay, so we have overgeneralization. What are some other thinking styles? We have two more that I've compiled in this list. Although, as I mentioned before, there are 10 to 15 that are generally accepted. Number nine is disqualifying the positive. And in my work with anxious teens, this happens all the time. So a teen who gets an A on a test dismisses that as not significant. But if they get a B on a test... They ruminate, they stew over it, they think about how awful they are or the situation is. 
And I always said to my kids that I worked with, if you're going to give this much weight, time, attention, and energy to a bee, it would be really helpful and healthy for your brain to give the equal amount of attention to an A. Absolutely. I've also been aware of parents who have very high expectations for their children in the area of grades. And so a child will present a report card with all A's and one A minus. And the question is, what happened here? Pointing to the A minus. And I believe, I mean, that's just so much pressure and so unfortunate. And I I have plenty of flaws as a parent, but I know I've heard stories of that happening. I'm also aware that we do this to ourselves quite a bit. So I'm thinking of social media. And when you start to perhaps interact with people you don't know in real life and you start putting, posting things that are a little, maybe a little less conventional, maybe a little more authentic to who you truly are. And you're kind of testing some of that authenticity online and you may not receive a hundred percent positive feedback. What I've seen in myself is really worrying about less than positive feedback. So I might have 60 comments that are very positive and supportive and one that's not. And I'll think, oh, I feel so bad about that. And obviously I have the good fortune of having two sisters who are therapists. So I So I can realize my cognitive error in those moments after time. But I think it's so typical for that inner critic to come out and protect us. So this is like merging all these different concepts and really disqualifying the positive. I've experienced this in my practice when I was a licensed marriage and family therapist operating in California, and I would have parents come in and be very distressed about their child. And so I would ask what they were seeing in their child. And sometimes the parents would say they're failing school. And I would say, oh my gosh, your child is getting all Fs. And they'd say, no, they don't have any Fs. And so Without having any conscious awareness, they were engaging in labeling, which is failing. They were engaging in all or nothing thinking. They were engaging in disqualifying the positive. We all do it. We all do it all the time. And it contributes to horrific personal distress internally. And that takes us back to self-regulation. And if you would like to have better regulation, you need to tend to the way your brain is automatically thinking and those styles that are unhelpful. Okay. And then number 10 is mental filter. Tell us what you mean by mental filter as a thinking style. The 10th thinking style is unreal ideal. And the unreal ideal is also related to a lot of what we see on social media. So I'm going to compare my most difficult experiences and dynamics with what everybody is posting on Facebook about how beautiful and wonderful their life is. And although there is a part of our brain that knows that nobody posts about horrible things, although some people do, the majority of us post about positive, exciting, beautiful life types of things. And so what happens is I develop an unreal ideal about how my internal and external life should be and what it should contain because I'm not allowing awareness of the fact that nobody has an ideal life all the time. People who are rich, people who are famous, those people do not have an ideal life. Although from the outside, you would certainly think so based on what you see posted on social media. Okay. So what are some examples of how 
this might work and what responses and skills we can use to mitigate some of these thinking thinking errors, really. That's exactly what they are. Once you recognize that you have thinking errors and you educate yourself about the different categories, you can start identifying which type of thinking error you're engaging in. And what happens when we become aware is we have agency and the opportunity to choose how we're going to challenge those. And we do not challenge those with positive thinking. The brain actually does not believe positive thinking. It will, however, believe accurate thinking. And so if I say to myself, nobody's ever going to ask me to dance again, then I would want to know that I'm catastrophizing or overgeneralizing. And then I'd want to remind myself that this is in fact not a fact and that I'm taking one experience and I'm making it true about my whole future. So knowing that there are thinking errors, becoming aware of when you engage in them, becoming aware of what types of thinking errors you most commonly engage in, and then challenging those with accurate or realistic thoughts. That is all part of the skill set that allows us to have more peace and calm in our lives because we're self-regulating. I also feel that positive thinking, we are, you know, one of the buzz phrases right now is toxic positivity. And that's the idea that positive thinking is trying to wash over any sort of negative reality instead of validating something is hard and working through it. And I also feel like toxic positivity can be problematic. Positive thinking, as you say, can the brain doesn't like it. But what I want to push back on a little bit is the concept of affirmations, because at the core you're constructing a new identity from positive thoughts about a positive future. And I find these extremely powerful. Now, they're not when I'm in a moment where I'm triggered and I'm saying, I am an amazing mother. (laughs) (laughs) Who is always calm. Yes, yes. I radiate patience. But what I find is when I include affirmations in my daily practice, I eventually start to become the person I am affirming that I already am. And so I just want to point out for our listeners that affirmations Affirmations are positive and affirmations are about developing into a future self with intention. Positive thoughts that are not validating a reality are not the same thing. Absolutely not. Positive thinking is great in certain situations or dynamics. But when we are dysregulated, the brain actually will not believe a positive thought that is not based on any reality. I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm really upset now that I can't pay my bills, but I'm going to be a millionaire someday. That is not an affirmation and it is not believable to the brain. So what would be more accurate would be to say, I'm super upset that I can't pay my electric bill. And I have always found a way to keep the electricity on. I'm going to breathe myself through this and get back connected to my logical prefrontal cortex and find a solution. I want to point out what I see as the main difference between these two is one affirmations include a spiritual component and they include the belief truly in miracles, if you will. And miracles, whether you believe it's through manifestation or through faith or any other circumstance where positive thinking is almost a negation of reality to the brain. And so while affirmations may seem outlandish, 
And this might seem like I'm splitting hairs, but I just believe so firmly in the power of affirmations that I want to make sure our listeners understand that affirmations can actually be really healing. And I have found them incredibly healing because as a trauma survivor, my affirmations include, I am capable of doing hard things. I am able to face difficult situations with grace and love. I forgive others easily. And those are very positive thoughts that lead me to develop into a better version of myself, a more loving version of myself. So yes, they are positive, but they are not not based in reality. Well, what you're talking about actually is rewiring. So when we speak in the present tense about growth and future, it actually lays down new wiring that helps us develop a belief system, an emotional response that goes with that belief system, and a physical sensation that also accompanies that belief system. So what you're talking about is when you're triggered, just trying to say a positive thought it would not lay down new neuropathways because it has to be combined with an elevated emotion. So what we're doing when we challenge the thought is we are trying to get back into our window of tolerance so that we can get through the experience without more distress or relationship rupture. And then at a different time, we would engage in positive affirmations. Okay, very helpful. Every week we give away fun swag, and if you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or go on your Instagram stories and talk about the episode and tag us at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. It really means so much to us that you take the time to listen and engage with us, and we love you all and know that together we can build a beautiful world. There's so many good episodes coming up, so definitely subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And go ahead and leave us a review because it is free and it only takes a minute and it would really mean so much to us. Finally, if you're inspired by this episode and you think of someone who would love it or learn from it, feel free to send them the link or post about it on Instagram and tag us and we'll repost a few. Again, that's at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. We love you. We'll be back in a few days. Keep healing.